Hello, this is Tom Wilmoth with The Vinyl Approach. The name Bruce Springsteen has appeared in news feeds during the last couple of months. One entry has to do with economics. Bruce has reportedly sold his back catalog of songs. This doesn't affect me, except now I may be forced to hear Born to Run during TV ads for adult diapers. Another news item has to do with the release of Springsteen's 1979 Madison Square Garden concerts held in New York City. These are being touted as the legendary Muse concerts. They took place as a series of shows spotlighting the need for clean energy. Jackson Brown enlisted a bunch of his pals for the week of benefits, including Crosby, Stills & Nash, Bonnie Raitt, Poco, James Taylor, and the Doobie Brothers. The five concerts, the triple album, and the movie assembled from the performances were all surrounded by well-meaning calls for activism and then quickly forgotten. I tried to buy this album in 1982 for the five minutes of live Springsteen material, of course. This was just two years after its release, and low sales had already made this a hard record to find or even order. These forgotten shows are being called legendary, maybe, but use any hyperbolic marketing tool you want, and it is good that the Springsteen material is now officially available. Bruce played two of the five nights, a 60-minute set with his own E Street band, followed by a few tunes with invited guests. It's his own band's show that is of greatest interest, of course. The DVD released by the Springsteen camp is a culmination of the two nights' identical sets. The best shots and performances were edited together for this release. While continuity between the two nights is not bad, seamless visual continuity is not really the goal. When Bruce appears mid-set in a different shirt, or when there are other less obvious visual changes in the two concerts, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is the music. Released 42 years after the event, there has been a lot of time for other live Springsteen footage to come out, and it has. As such, this 1979 set can be placed for comparison between the 1978 Complete Concert from Houston and the truncated 1980 Tempe, Arizona concert video. Released now, the Muse set is not revelatory, as it would have been if viewed in 1979, but it's still great. Bruce plays nine of his own songs and four covers. Of the originals, three are from the latest album, Darkness on the Edge of Town. Three are from Born to Run, and two are from the album the band is recording at the time of this concert, The River, plus Rosalita from the second album. It's a strong set. That the band has been off the road for nine months never enters one's head. They are in peak form throughout. 1979 is a different era for Bruce fandom. At one point of the show, Springsteen spots a couple in the audience and acknowledges them as people who are always coming to his hotel room in different cities, bringing him odd gifts. Don't try that today. Miami Steve Van Zant thought Bruce's Muse sets would serve as the template for the band's next tour, expecting them to go out and make the audience crazy for 90 minutes and then call it a night. Wrong. Bruce's subsequent 1980 River Tour had an opening set that lasted close to 90 minutes each night. With hundreds of hours of live audio performances now officially released, and Springsteen concerts airing daily on Sirius XM, it's easy to forget that the Detroit medley on the 1979 Muse soundtrack album was the first concert Springsteen recording officially available to the public, a fact not lost on some album reviewers of the day. The movie itself was more generous with performances of Thunder Road, Quarter to Three, and The River, 
a song still unreleased when the Muse movie briefly played theaters in July 1980. Some material from these concerts became widely available. Both The River and Thunder Road are included on an authorized video anthology. These are from the Muse movie, both coming from the night not used for the new DVD release. In the movie, before playing The River, Bruce dedicates the new song to his sister and brother-in-law. That's a pretty stark song to be the inspiration for. I wonder how they felt about that. The performance of The River on the new concert DVD is superior to the movies, if only because Springsteen is not constantly blinking his eyes into a blue spotlight throughout the song. One thing I found interesting about this new release is how the footage has not been painstakingly restored. Lots of visual ticks and clicks. But that actually fits well with the nature of the filming itself, which was necessarily haphazard. Cameramen are fishing for good shots throughout Bruce's set. It works fine most of the time, but it's a catch-as-catch-can sort of video. They do get most of what's important on stage, though, and the sound is excellent. It's a good set, and an appropriate starting place for the uninitiated. While not my favorite concert footage of Bruce or this band, it is representative of Springsteen's power as a performer before he became a superstar. Well, that's about all I wanted to say about Springsteen's Muse concerts and the new DVD release, but I see that we have a few minutes remaining, so let's talk some more about Bruce. In 2009, as his tour for the Working on a Dream album wound down, Springsteen began playing complete albums as part of his concert set lists. Not every night, but with some frequency. Born to Run was the album most often performed, but the entire Darkness on the Edge of Town album was sometimes played, as was Born in the USA. Bruce stopped in Milwaukee at the tail end of this tour. A few weeks before the show, it was announced he would perform the Born to Run album in its entirety. Some said this was to bolster sagging ticket sales. I don't know if that's true, but seeing that Born to Run would be played all the way through did make me all the more interested in attending the show, which I did. Although this was the Working on a Dream tour, songs from that album had all but disappeared from the set. The album's lead-off track was Outlaw Pete, a number that Springsteen seemed to have high hopes for. He featured the song in a prominent position on the album and had published a children's book to accompany it. Audiences did not embrace the humorous concept of a child outlaw, though, and the song was dropped early in the tour. Few complained. There are strong songs on the record, including Kingdom of Days, and there are curious songs, such as The Birthday Greeting Surprise Surprise and Queen of the Supermarket. I like both, but by the end of the tour, the only concert survivor from the new album was its title track, Working on a Dream. The Milwaukee concert began with Cadillac Ranch. This is an unexpected choice for an opener, but the song name-checks the state of Wisconsin where he was playing. I think Bruce probably sang this number to prove that he knew where he was. At his previous concert, two nights earlier in Michigan, Springsteen told his audience how great it was to be in Ohio several times. Miami Steve finally approached Bruce to remind him that they were in Michigan. It happens. Bruce was never less than Springsteenian during his three-hour Milwaukee show, but there were signs that he and the band were ready to get off the road. After the night's second song, he shouted, Three to go! A reference to the fact that they were near the end of the tour, with only three shows remaining. Late in the concert, Springsteen spotted a sign in the audience that asked Steve Van Zant for a dance. Bruce asked his guitarist if he wanted to dance with the fan. 
No, said Steve. Emphatically no. He was tired. Early in the set, Bruce introduced the Born to Run album. He spoke of this record as being the real start of his ongoing conversation with fans. Born to Run was his third record, but it was the one that really began his career. I was among the many who had been aware of Springsteen, but was never truly on board. That is, I didn't play him very often. In the record library of the radio station where I worked, I saw his debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park, and thought the cover design was clever, an oversized postcard from a one-time haven for East Coast vacations. This first album did have some strong songs, like Lost in the Flood, For You, Growing Up, and It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. But the album didn't get a lot of airtime, on my station or on others. Spirit in the Night was released as a single, but failed to even make the top 100 of Billboard's pop chart. Bruce's Greetings album had been so widely overlooked that in 1976, when Manfred Mann had a number one hit with Blinded by the Light, few realized that this song had been the lead-off track to Bruce's first album, released just a few years earlier. Late in 1973 came Springsteen's second record, titled The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. It received very little promotion. Columbia Records didn't even bother to release a single from the album, having decided that signing Springsteen was a mistake. In their defense, these were not normal rock albums, and they were by no means the folk albums Columbia thought it was getting. But both of these first two albums contained curiously folky songs. On Greetings from Asbury Park, these included Mary, Queen of Arkansas, and The Angel. On The Wild, The Innocent, there was only one, but it was a true oddity, called Wild Billy's Circus Story. Fortunately, this song was placed at the end of the album's first side, so it was easy to avoid. Springsteen must have liked Wild Billy's Circus Story, though, enough to include it in his set at the May 1973 Columbia Records Showcase gig in L.A., Bruce was opening for two other bands, so I assume he did not have a limitless amount of time. But he played this song, the live recording of which was then released by Columbia as a promotional record for radio, where it's simply called Circus Song. By any name, the number must have meaning for Bruce, with lyrics that describe a young man's escape to the nomadic circus life. The promotional record is now very collectible, but that doesn't improve the song, which remains at odds with the rest of the album. Before too long, as with his debut, the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle album was largely forgotten. It wasn't until the great success of Born to Run that most listeners started to backtrack into Bruce's catalog and reassess his first two albums. Songs on the first two records were absent from Bruce's set list by the time of the Darkness Tour of 1978. Playing the bulk of Born to Run and the new album's material left little room for the early songs, even at Bruce's lengthy concerts. Spirit in the Night from the first album and Rosalita from the second were played at each show, but otherwise most of these songs were temporarily retired. Growing Up was played, and on some nights, late in the set, Bruce would call up his uncharacteristic ballad Sandy from the second album, a song featuring Danny Federici's accordion. The focus on recent material would be even more pronounced on 1980's River Tour, but since he was promoting a double album, he had a lot of new songs to get across. Bruce was also playing numbers on that tour that he had written but not himself released, like Fire and Because the Night. As such, most of his early songs were shelved during tours for Darkness on the Edge of Town, The River, Born in the USA, Tunnel of Love, and the non-E Street band outings. In recent years, however, Bruce has returned to his earliest albums. While in Australia, in 2014, large sections of the first two records were heard regularly. He played most of the Greetings album as the tour progressed and performed the entire second album in Brisbane, 
Yes, even Wild Billy's Circus Story. Bruce may have been playing these early songs and entire albums in part to remind his audience about them, as he did with the subsequent River album tour of 2016. Other performers would do similar things to point to their past. After his career kicked into high gear, label mate Billy Joel released an album called Songs from the Attic. These were early live recordings of selections from Joel's first albums, songs that the performer thought had been overlooked the first time around. Once the big radio hits started coming, Billy Joel wanted his fans to be aware of songs they probably missed. Smart. Bruce must have liked the experiment of playing complete albums. He concluded 2009's Working on a Dream Tour with an added show in New York City where he performed all of Greetings from Asbury Park. Six years later, Springsteen would mount the tour where he played the River album in its entirety each night. For me, at Bruce's 2009 Milwaukee show, it was great to hear Born to Run all the way through. This concert was also notable for Jolet Blonde and a burning version of Kitty's Back. During the request section, Bruce was pleased and surprised when an elaborate sign asked for his song Living Proof. This unexpected number almost stymied Bruce's band, but they made their way through it. In retrospect, this was a notable show for the E Street Band itself, as this was one of the last concerts that Clarence Clemens would play. He died in June 2011, before the next tour began. Coming full circle today, I mentioned at the outset that Bruce Springsteen's economic affairs have been in the spotlight recently. He's been labeled the biggest earning musician for 2021. This includes the $550 million sale of his back catalog, plus other revenue streams like book royalties, his Spotify program, and ticket sales for his one-man Broadway show. Good for him. But I must distance myself from these economic records if I want to keep enjoying his vinyl records. I equate it to baseball. If I focus on the money-changing hands, it ruins baseball for me. Let me just watch the game without thinking too much about the economic backdrop. Let me listen to music without crunching numbers. Naive? Maybe. I don't live in an economic bubble, but I am sure to enjoy both ball game and music if I set aside thoughts of the money involved. Numbers are for baseball stats, time signatures, and billboard chart positions. I don't know Bruce's current feelings towards economics, but there was a time when money seemed to be far from his thoughts. Dick Cavett had record producer John Hammond on his talk show in the early 1970s. Hammond urged Cavett to have Bruce on as a guest. Hammond said that he had never met any artist who thought less about money than Bruce Springsteen. Cavett apparently had no interest. But at that time, who would have thought that Bruce could later achieve such economic heights? Nobody. Well, that's not quite true. Former manager Mike Apple was a true believer. It was Apple who got Bruce into the office of Columbia Records to meet with John Hammond. After hearing Bruce in his demo tape, Hammond said that this artist would last a generation. How could Hammond make that proclamation based on those nascent songs? Go listen to that unreleased audition tape sometime. What did Hammond hear in there? Everybody is glad that John Hammond took a chance on Bruce, as he had earlier with Charlie Christian, Benny Goodman, Billy Holiday, and Bob Dylan. John Hammond was a visionary, but I arrived late to the Springsteen party. I had a passing interest in Springsteen at best. Then I saw him in concert. As some of my Bruce-following friends assured me, I quickly made up for lost time. But that's a story of obsession for another day. This has been The Vinyl Approach. 
I'm Tom Wilmoth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time.